This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me today is a very special guest, Andrew Noon. Andrew is an independent scholar that holds graduate degrees in musicology and art history as a Florence Fellow with Syracuse University. He's also completed the U.S. Department of Education's Keepers of the Republic three-year history program hosted by the American Antiquarian Society. He has taught courses in the humanities at colleges throughout Massachusetts and is published with Worldwide Books and the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. A former member of the Worcester Historical Commission, he is a docent with Preservation Worcester. His home borders Greenhill Park, resting place of Bathsheba Spooner. Andrew, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for the invite. So the reason you're here today is to tell us about your book, Bathsheba Spooner, A Revolutionary Murder Conspiracy. And your book goes into a scandalous murder conspiracy that took place during the height of the Revolutionary War. So how did you learn about this story? It had always been uh, fairly well known in Worcester County, less so throughout the state. And when I moved into our home a couple of decades ago, which is right on Greenhill Park, a dinner guest reminded us, well, that's where Bathsheba is buried. And very little had been published to that point. So I decided to research into it. A couple of years later, a book did come out, but I decided to continue my research, my approach being more of a, almost a novelistic style, though it's nonfiction, as opposed to mm-hmm. a purely academic book. Sure. And as you mentioned in your book, which is a fabulous job, by the way, of painting a picture of kind of what life was like at the time when the divide between loyalists and patriots was kind of at its peak, you start with the history of Timothy Ruggles. Can you tell our listeners a little more about him and how he kind of plays into Bathsheba's story? Sure. He was uh, descended from one of uh, Massachusetts' oldest families from Roxbury, Massachusetts, I uh, set up his legal practice on the South Shore, south of Boston, and later Sandwich on the Cape Cod. He became Speaker of the House, a hero of the French and Indian War, and probably the leading loyalist in Massachusetts. His name today would be well known had he gone on the winning side, but he was a fervent admirer of the king and chose to remain a loyalist. Mm-hmm. Bathsheba was his uh, next to last and favorite child. According to an article in the January 24th, 1904 edition of the St. Paul Globe, quote, When the War for American Independence broke out, there were few men in Massachusetts more prominent than Timothy Ruggles of Hardwick, a little town in Worcester County, about 25 miles from the county seat. General Ruggles was in the good graces of George II, 
who granted him the office of Surveyor General, which carried with it a salary of £3,000, or around £376,000 today. The Ruggles Mansion in Hardwick was frequently the scene of great festivity. And she had three siblings? I uh, know she had um 14. Oh, wow. Well, I was way off. She, she had a lot of siblings. Had, had, I was thinking about three, her. Yeah, she had three surviving kids. Okay, that's where I got the number three. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I know there's a three in there somewhere. Yeah. So Bathsheba married a man named Joshua Spooner. Uh, what can you tell us about Joshua? We don't know a whole lot. He was the son of a Boston businessman. It was likely an arranged marriage. That's not for certain. But it was very common, obviously, um, Boston families to match up with other wealthy families. Mm-hmm. He had established, her father had established a state in Hardwick, Massachusetts, about uh, 55 miles west of Boston. And it was likely that she was planning to settle out there anyways. So he, he he always had connections to Boston somehow. He had a lot of Boston connections. So it was likely through his Boston network that he uh, ran across the Spooner family. And Joshua was looking for a newlywed, and here she was. Sure. According to an article in the February 14, 1875 edition of the Yearington Times, quote, Bathsheba was his beautiful, favorite, willful daughter, and it is strange that he allowed her to marry old Joshua Spooner, much older than herself, and entirely beneath her in every respect, end quote. Another article in the January 24, 1904 edition of the St. Paul Globe stated, quote, Spooner was a respectable country merchant of Brookfield, a town some 10 miles from Hardwick. He had a handsome property, but was much older than his young wife. Their tastes did not accord, and they were an ill-mated pair. But whatever the reason for the marriage, she left the great mansion of Hardwick, with its gaiety, in which she had shone brilliantly, and began a life of unhappiness in the Spooner home at Brookfield." End quote. And you mentioned in your book that Bathsheba kind of wasn't your typical 1770s housewife. In what ways was she different from what we today would view as the standard from that time period? I think she was a very headstrong person. I think she inherited her father's personality. He was definitely a type A personality. She was very free-spirited, spoke her mind. And Brookfield was one of the more prominent towns in Worcester County at the time, but it's still a town of only 2,000 people. So she must have cut quite a figure there. Sure. And she was she had the reputation of being kind of the bell of Brookfield until things began to go sour. Yeah. As the Revolutionary War was kind of getting ready to sort of break out, if you will, can you give us an idea of what life would have been like for families who were sort of like divided on their political leanings? Sure. So it's a common story. Uh, she had brothers who were and sisters who were um, pro. American or pro, divided between pro-American, pro-loyalist. Her father had the reputation by 1774 of being the most intense loyalist in the state. And she's in an isolated capacity. She's, again, 55, 60 miles from Boston in Brookfield. Her husband is often away. He's a patriot himself. So there's a lot, a lot of tension politically and socially given her life in Brookfield. Sure. And according to your book, Joshua took to land ownership as kind of his profession. And the pair kind of appeared to be well off. And so Mm -hmm. knowing this, what do you think would have inspired Bathsheba to want to kill her husband? I think when she discovered she was pregnant, that that set things into a quick motion, I think. So she would have known by January that she was. 
I think that inspired her to, um, it was a desperate move. She had to do something fast. She had tried to have him killed a few weeks earlier than that, apparently. Uh, but now it, it, it went to high gear once, it, once sure. she discovered her pregnancy. So without giving away too much of the book, mm-hmm. can you give our listeners an idea of what life must have been like for Bathsheba, kind of following her father's flight and kind of how sure. her relationship with her husband changed? Yeah. So again, she's alone in Bookfield. The uh, Battle of Saratoga is about to take place in upstate New York. The British lose the battle, and the soldiers are prisoners of war, march to Boston. So there, there's some escape on the way. Others escape from Boston once they're settled. So there are you know, foreign soldiers roaming the streets all over Massachusetts. She's alone in Brookfield. She has two or three male boarders, as it is already there. Earlier on, she had invited a Scottish soldier way back in November to be her servant at home. Her husband's off and away. Her favorite family member, her father, is by this point removed to Staten Island where most Tories were. So he's hundreds of miles away. Mm-hmm. So she's feeling pretty alone, pretty desperate, very frustrated, I think. And she mm-hmm. and her husband have n- apparently never gotten along or may have, may have had a very brief honeymoon early on in the marriage. Sure. And Ezra Ross plays a big part in this story. Can you explain mm-hmm. to our listeners who he was and kind of how he entered the picture? So he's a teenage militiaman from Topsfield, which is north shore of Boston, near Cape Ann. He had fought in the uh, New Jersey campaign, was apparently injured or became sick, ended up in a hospital camp in Peekskill, New York, which is just north of the city, was released and walked his way, was planned to walk his way home. En route, he stops in Brookfield, is it called in by Bathsheba, who nurses him to health. This is summer of 77. He returns to Topsfield and on his, on his return to the battle scene, Saratoga this time, marches again through Brookfield and is called in again with, with Bathsheba. And things, the relationship definitely kicks up a couple of notches at that point, that point. Yep. According to an article in the January 24th, 1904 edition of the St. Paul Globe, quote, in this unhappy household appeared in 1776 Ezra Ross, a soldier of the American army returning from his first campaign. He was but 16 years of age, but handsome and gallant, a boy in years, but a man in spirit. Two years later, with the Northern campaign over, Ross was again a visitor. Ross was now a young man of 18, fine-looking and soldierly, whom campaigning had developed into a man of the world. She was a woman of 33, beautiful and accomplished. Unhappy in her domestic life, she readily bestowed her love upon the dashing young soldier, end quote. So you mentioned that Bathsheba had become quite the femme fatale, if you will, mm-hmm. and even ended up enlisting the services of James Buchanan and William Brooks. Mm-hmm. How did they get roped into her plans to murder her husband? Sure. So on a stormy night in early February 1778, they were on their way to apparently work in Springfield, having just left Worcester. Brookfield's right between Worcester and Springfield, heading west. And as they're walking along in this blinding snowstorm, Bathsheba calls them in. Actually, her servant, Alexander Cummings, called them in. And almost immediately, she's very friendly with them. And probably within 12 hours, begins discussing, suggesting her husband's murder with them, which they found very strange. That's a a A regular reaction, I would assume. (laughs) Yeah, I could say that, So she, uh, she's recruiting men to do her dirty deed early on. Mm-hmm. 
According to an article in the January 24, 1904 edition of the St. Paul Globe, quote, while Ross was with Spooner on one of his trips, there came to the Spooner residence two British soldiers, James Buchanan and William Brooks, who were called into the house by the servants at Mrs. Spooner's request. These men were entertained by Mrs. Spooner's instructions for two weeks, and liquor was furnished them without stint, end quote. So without spoiling the murder itself, sure. when the trial t- itself took place, mm-hmm. what made it different from other trials, given the fact that American law, kind of for lack of a better word, was in its infancy? Yeah, I think by and large, they followed uh, British law still during the revolution. Again, Blackstone's commentaries were the, the British jurist. His commentaries were the favorite source of law for early America. So they followed that by and large. And I think given the revolution, they didn't want to make too many innovations at that point. And typically trials were only a day anyways. So they followed, they followed essentially British procedure. We all male okay. jury, of course. Yeah. Sure. According to an article in the January 24th, 1904 edition of the St. Paul Globe, quote, the case was a notable one. In ordinary cases, the conviction and sentence of the guilty parties would have been speedily followed by their execution. But here began a scene in the drama which kept the convicted in suspense and the people in a high state of excitement for weeks, end quote. And that's a good point. So given that she was a woman, just how scandalous was the trial of Bathsheba? And not just the woman, she's the daughter, the favorite daughter of the most notorious Tory in Massachusetts. You can just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. By that point, you know, the war had shifted south to uh, New York and New Jersey. So Massachusetts was no longer the arena for the revolution. I think they needed some entertainments. All the young men are gone. Men under 35 are all gone. Inflation's running out of control. It was a very hot summer and hot spring. They needed a big diversion and they found it in Bathsheba. And I think there was so much animus against her father, who's now exiled to, to, uh, safely among Tories in Staten Island, that I think a lot of that wrath was focused on her. Sure. Keeping in mind, keeping in mind, she did mastermind the horrible crime. Yeah, that's true. But it would it would make sense that a lot of that animosity would be transferred to her, given that he's he's not around to be the subject of their ire. Right. And plus, she's not a backseat personality. She's speaking her mind. She's right out there. That could not have gained a lot of friends. That's very true. Mm-hmm. As sort of an, an armchair historian, mm-hmm. I admire just how much research you were able to conduct and how much information you were able to find for this book. If you don't mind me asking, how did you start your research? Just down the street. I'm a half mile from me is the American Antiquarian Society, which is the world's largest collection of early American printed matter. Two-thirds of all printed matter between early 17th century and 1875 is in that building, more than the Library of Congress. So it was a natural place to begin. And also all the local libraries and historical societies also, the relevant ones, Rutland, Brookfield, Hardwick, they had a direct connection to the story. Massachusetts Historical Society later on, Massachusetts Genealogical Society, Massachusetts Archives, where all the court records were. That's awesome. So now that your book is published, do you have plans to write anything else? Yes, I'm currently researching a new one. Uh, Bathsheba's attorney, Levi Lincoln, who's uh, the president's distant cousin, two years later took on a slave case from Barry, Massachusetts, and it became, it marked the end of slavery in Massachusetts, Massachusetts becoming, in that case, the first state in the country to end slavery. So her attorney was featured in, in, in that prominent slave case. And a book has never really been done on it, so I'm researching that now. That's awesome. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you'd 
love for our listeners to know either about you or your book. The, the question a lot of times comes up in the readings I give regarding Bathsheba's sanity. And I always mention that it's impossible for me to consider it two and a half centuries later, especially, I mean, psychologists can't do it. I can't do it, certainly. But it, it does raise, <laughs> given the way she she acted and reacted to things, you know, very feisty, lying constantly, inviting British soldiers into her home, American soldier, having her daughter touch the corpse, saying a lot of bizarre things along the way that had no connection to reality. It seems that she at least had a personality disorder. It's probably safe to say that. And, and you know, today, obviously, in, in a trial, she would have been declared insane, I think. Yeah. I don't think she would have been. She certainly, I don't think, would have gotten the death penalty in any state, I don't think. But things were very different two and a half centuries ago. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. It's It became very clear in her interactions, like you said, not only with the men that she had hired to murder her husband, but also with her own staff and children, that things weren't quite right towards the end. Right, right. So you're having your husband killed. You are very likely going to be executed. What happens to your three kids? Was that a consideration? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you could easily ship them off to her, their grandfather, you know. Right, right. They did stay for a short time with her sister, Martha, in the same town, Brookfield. And then I believe they ended up with a relative in Virginia. So again, this is well-off family. They had connections, certainly. But yeah, the decisions she made do not point to a stable personality. No, I would agree. Well, I would like to thank you for joining me today. It has been an absolute pleasure and honor speaking with you. You are actually the first author that I have interviewed for the podcast. So, Thank you, Lindsay. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can find a copy of your book? Sure. It's at Amazon. Just putting my name in the the slot will work. It's also available at 50 or 60 book sites online, Target, Walmart, uh, Books A Million, et cetera, et cetera. So quite a few places are offering it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Andrew. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at yieldcrimepodcast. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. And on that note, I'm Lindsay, and I'll see you next time with another tale as old.
as crime.